Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're beginning a series in the book of Haggai today, and it's a series called God's Presence Among His People. So let's turn to the book of Haggai as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There is an assumption everywhere we look that that we can enjoy the blessing of God without a commitment to God. Everywhere we look in our culture, we see the disappearance of any acknowledgement of our dependence on God. All sorts of people believe that their future well-being on this earth doesn't depend on God at all. And so there is an assumption that if we are to do well, we'll need a healthy economy and then out of that a healthy allocation of resources. I mean, talk to a politician that is what he or she is going to tell you. They can't imagine of any more to the good life than that. And that attitude does find its way into the church as well. We've gone through an era in North America in which the church growth movement has ruled supreme. And the key book that gives impetus to that movement was spelled out in seven vital signs of a healthy church. And Those signs include a senior pastor who's a possibility thinker and whose dynamic vision and strategy for growth has compelled the entire church into action. A second sign involved a people who would buy into that vision and propel the church forward. Other vital signs included a clear articulation of the kind of people you wanted to reach, kind of like targeting your market audience. Well, I I don't need to go on. I myself years ago did an independent study with the key architect of that movement, but I do think you get the point. The seven vital signs did not include repentance from sins, faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. It didn't include the need for biblical preaching, except to the extent that the preacher was needed to meet the felt needs of the audience. Well, where was reliance on God in all of that? Well, it wasn't there. Instead, there was a reliance on self that human beings could do a great deal to build the local church into mega powerhouses ready to reach a generation. And a generation was raised on precisely that. And it was effectively been raised on a generation without the need for God. And the results are showing. And so for one short week, I want to examine the message of a man by the name of Haggai. He was a prophet to the people of his day. And let me say, that his ancient message is desperately needed to be heard by people in our day. I can't stress that enough. What Haggai had to say is so powerful that I think, if we listened and took to heart what he says, I'm going to say that I think that he would transform the spiritual life of a generation. And yeah, I, I do think that what he said is just that important. Now, it may seem surprising to us because I think there are some who might not have even known that there is a book in the Bible called the book of Haggai. And furthermore, I think most Christians today, if you ask them what was in the book of Haggai, well, they would have a blank expression, having no idea what's there. And then another test, I suspect, if you asked most Christians where to find the book of Haggai in the Bible, they'd have to go to the table of contents to be able to find it. So let me help. First, the book of Haggai is in the First Testament, or what most of us call the Old Testament. But I think you've probably guessed that part. And second, the book of Haggai is in the section of the First Testament that we call the Minor Prophets. The First Testament is divided into five sections. There is first the law, second the historical books, third wisdom literature, fourth the major prophets, and then fifth the minor prophets. 
Now, the minor prophets make up the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and they're called minor not because they're not important, but because they're shorter. In the case of Haggai, the book has only two chapters. Haggai, then, is the third last book of the Old Testament. Now, in order to understand the book, one must understand the times in which the book was written. Haggai is a series of four prophecies or four messages to Israel given in the year 520 BC. Now, if that time period doesn't make you say, aha, I get it, well, let me help. The Babylonian army had surrounded Jerusalem and in short order would break down the walls of the city. They'd massacre a great many people and they would burn Jerusalem and the temple of Solomon to the ground. And then they'd take a great many of the people of Israel into exile from Israel to Babylon, which is located in modern-day Iraq. All of that happened between 608 and 587 BC. But why did it happen? Well, it happened because the prophets had been warning the people of their sins, but they refused to put aside their idols. They refused to stop oppressing the poor. They refused to turn to the law of God and put their hope in the God of Israel. And then just as the prophets had predicted, the Babylonians destroyed the city. But Jeremiah the prophet had predicted that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years and then God would redeem his people. And so, right on schedule, exactly 70 years from when the Babylonians started taking exiles, the year is now 538 BC, the first group of Jewish exiles are allowed to return to the promised land. And this is an important time in Israel's history. And we can read about this in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. So let's take the time and hear that passage. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so a ragtag group of Jews returned to the promised land. Now, if we think about it in our terms, in our day, well, we might think of the date 1948, for that's the date when the Jews again claimed the land of Israel as their inheritance, founded among a hostile group of nations that surrounded them. Well, 538 BC was no different the Jews came back to their land and the people groups who had settled in that very land deeply resented this group coming back and claiming this as their ancestral land. Nonetheless, God was with them. And by the time we come to Ezra chapter 3, we see that the exiles are not only settling in their land, but we also find that they've begun to rebuild the completely destroyed temple that once stood at Mount Moriah. And if you think of Israel today, you'll notice that the Dome of the Rock, or the Islamic Mosque, has been built on that very site. But in the time of Ezra, the, the very location was just a broken down and burned set of ruins. And so let's give Ezra the time to describe what happened. That is, let's see it through Ezra's own eyes. Here I'm reading Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, 
and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And so we've got to imagine the scene. It was one of great excitement, and of course, it's one of weeping at the same time. The old men who had actually seen the glorious Solomonic temple looked at the foundation of this new temple, and they saw a smaller foundation. And certainly, they didn't have the kind of resources that Solomon had available to him. Solomon had built a glorious temple, and they knew this wasn't going to be the same. So the contrast between the two houses was significant. The former one absolutely stunning. Psalm 48 would call Jerusalem and her temple the joy of the whole earth. But this one, now being built by the exiles, was going to be smaller, less ornate, lesser skilled builders. This was going to be a modest and a humble temple. Now, those of us who know our New Testament might be confused because we might remember that Jesus' disciples were once overwhelmed by the magnificence of this temple. But that's because in the time of Jesus, about 500 years later, Herod the Great had undertaken a massive rebuilding of this temple, and he made it a magnificent structure that it was in Jesus' time. But in the days of Ezra, the thing was small and modest and unimpressive. At least that's how it seemed when the foundation was laid. But the younger men were cheering with joy. And then amazingly, the entire project ground to a halt so that 17 years later, this temple was left unbuilt, just the foundation having been laid. At some point in time, the project of rebuilding the temple simply stopped and everyone just started living their own lives and they were content to leave the temple of God as a heap of ruins. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts you've given to sustain and grow our global Bible teaching efforts. Your support allows Bible teaching resources and programming to be sent to partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence and trustworthy Bible teaching. And we're so blessed for the opportunity to support and participate in International Pastors Bible Teaching Conferences. Thank you to all those who chose to sponsor a pastor. Please continue to pray and consider how you might contribute to these ongoing international initiatives, or even consider becoming an international monthly partner. So call today for more information or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, it's so easy to read the First Testament without understanding the significance of what we're reading. And the significance of the temple is key to understanding the prophecy of Haggai. Let's put it into a context that we can all understand. You know, every given Sunday, Christians will say, we go to church. 
Well, of course, the church is people and it's not a building, but we mean by that we're going to the building where God's people are going to gather for worship and for instruction in the scripture, for sharing the Lord's table and for fellowship with each other. And it's so easy for us to think that the temple in the First Testament is just a bit like that. But that simply was not the case. Our Sunday meeting for worship today is based not on the temple, but on the Jewish synagogue. It was in the local synagogues where Jews were instructed on a weekly basis in the study of Scripture. That didn't really happen in the temple. The temple is a place where Israel would go to worship. There were special times of the year when they would go. We, we know of Passover. We know of the, the Feast of Tabernacles. We, we think perhaps of the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Pentecost or of First Fruits and so forth. The temple is a place where special remembrance was to be taking place for the mighty acts of God. But of course, the significance of the temple was that it was the one place of sacrifice. You see, it was an offense against God's law to sacrifice in any other place other than the temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, the temple is key to understanding God's covenant with his people. You remember that it was all the way back in the book of Exodus that we read of God's great deliverance. God sent Moses to Pharaoh with a demand. He said, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh refused, and in consequence, Pharaoh suffered a series of 10 punishing plagues, leaving Egypt's economy in ruins and resulting in the death of every firstborn in the land. Finally, Pharaoh's army is drowned in the Red Sea, and he returns to Egypt, and he's utterly humiliated. He's had to acknowledge that the Lord is God. But God had a different plan for Israel. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and there he enters into a covenant with them. It's a a binding agreement with his people. He's going to be their God, and they are going to be his people. And, And consequently, God gives his people the holy law. But he also tells them how he is to be worshiped. And so the last chapters of Exodus are taken up in a detailed instruction of the tabernacle. The tabernacle then represented God's presence among his people, and it also told Israel of the mandate that they were to worship God, and it explained just how God was to be approached. The sacrificial ritual reminded Israel that God was holy, that they were sinful. And so it was important to learn that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness. And so the temple represented a holy God living among his people. It also represented human sin and our unworthiness to approach a holy God. But the temple also told that God would, through the shedding of blood, find a way to forgive his people and to present them whole before him. And all of that's taken up in that one word, covenant. A holy God will find a way to bring an unholy people into his presence. And so let me say it again. Our local churches are not the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Jesus hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem, that one perfect sacrifice, that's the fulfillment of the temple. And so on this side of history, our holy place is the cross where our Savior bled and died for us. But on that side of history, or in that time, in the time of Haggai, the temple was the assurance that God would fulfill his covenant, that he would make his people acceptable before God. Now, there are three Old Testament prophets that actually prophesied during that time period when God's people had returned to Israel after the exile. Now, they're the last three books of the Old Testament. They're the books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. 
And amazingly, all three of these books have an interesting theme that's injected among their prophecies. Remember that I said that when the Jews laid the foundation of the second temple, on top of the ruins of the first temple, that the old men saw how small and insignificant this temple looked, and so they wept. It seemed like they would never obtain the glory of the former house. Now, rather than quoting all three prophets in this regard, let me simply quote what Haggai says, and it's found in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So what does that mean? Well, it must mean that Haggai thinks that the new temple that was begun, which seemed to some so very disappointing, is going to have a far greater glory than Israel had ever imagined. You see, when Solomon dedicated the first temple, the glory of the Lord so settled on that temple that the priests found it hard to minister there. So thick was the cloud of God's glory. But says Haggai, you know, you guys ain't seen nothing yet. That's because Haggai says, along with Zechariah and Malachi, that this temple would be the very temple to which the Messiah would come. Solomon never saw that kind of glory. And that was the significance of rebuilding this temple. It was a global significance. This temple would represent the hope of the ages. And so it was imperative that the builders get to work. This was no minor task. There probably wasn't anything more important than doing that one thing. Well, that's a lengthy introduction, so now I think we're ready to begin reading Haggai. We're going to read the first two verses of the book. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You know, it is interesting to me that the book of Haggai is quite precise about the actual date in which it was written. Darius was the king of Persia at the time of the writing of that book. His predecessor, King Cyrus, had issued a decree allowing the exiles of Judea to go back to their promised land. And we know that the second year of the reign of Darius, the sixth month, the second day, that has been fixed by historians. The date is exactly August 29th, 520 BC. At this time, the exiles had been back in the promised land now for 17 years. And what's fascinating about this time is that it has been 17 years since the foundation of the temple was laid. What's been going on in all of those years that would lead the people to believe that the time to rebuild the temple had not yet come? 17 years later, after laying the foundation, that was it? They were just quitting? Why? Well, we know from Ezra chapter 3 that the work of rebuilding the temple had stopped in response to the opposition from their enemies and to letters that were being sent to the Persian king charging that the Jewish temple would lead to a revolution against the Persian empire. And so in 17 years, no work was done. The Jews had built an altar and they had reinstituted sacrifices and the foundation of the temple was laid, but that was it. After that, just ruins. And when Darius became king, he immediately worked to bring stability to his empire, which before him was in turmoil. But in the second year of the reign of Darius, that is, by 520 BC, all the unrest had died down. Peace had been established. 
You see, Haggai knew that after the legal barriers to building the temple had been removed and peace had been established, the people of Israel had forgotten all about the temple. They were interested in building their farms and their businesses. They were taking care of their families. They were busy observing their religion. But they had forgotten the temple because they hadn't a desire for the presence of God among them. Neglect of building the temple was essentially saying, it doesn't matter if God is among us. We can take care of our lives and we can build a future for ourselves and we can observe our religion. Why should the living God be among us? And that's why the book of Haggai is such an important book. It's a book written to people who think that they can run their lives and their church without the living God being among them. And if we listen to this small book in the Old Testament, we'll find out that they were wrong and so are we. Without God, everything we ever try to accomplish will leave us empty, will leave us dissatisfied, and eventually we will be left as barren people. There is nothing we need more than this one thing, that God be found among his people. Without him, we're destitute. Haggai will prove that. And you and I need to hear this message, especially in our own churches, in our own individual lives, our business lives, our family lives as well. Too many Christians today have gone through a ritual, a rote sense of existence without depending upon the living God among us at all times. We have become content without encountering God at each moment in time. Like the people of Israel in Haggai's time, we need to repent and we need to hear his message. John, I would imagine these people were not dissimilar to us at times, where we can slowly sort of fade away this sort of relationship with God and and become comfortable in our own thoughts and our own lives and distance ourselves from him. Yeah, it is amazing to me, Ben, that, you know, you can go years and years to church um, and even attend the proper meetings. And then when you do a self-evaluation and you find out, you know, where's my intimacy with God? Where's the signs that God is among us? How am I being encountered by God? How is my heart set afire when, you know, when I'm in prayer or passion just comes out? It, that's been so many years since that's happened. And, and what's replaced is just rote living. Um, when that happens, at the very least, we should wake up and say, Oh, Lord, I haven't sensed your presence now for years. Can you revive me again? I, I think that's got to be the heart of prayer. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Haggai right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16. But sometimes, the things we think we know lose our attention. Familiarity can erode our appreciation. If you be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Neufeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 3.16. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for his glory. Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month for free. 
So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.